Morning, gentlemen. Great to see you this spring day. It's already hot in Memphis. Going to cool down, though, this weekend, I understand. Everybody walking around without shoes on. It's like we're standing on holy ground or something. Yeah, it's great to, to let somebody shine your shoes to give to, to missions, and we're grateful to be spreading the love of Christ in many places around the globe. And as we came to the end of Chapter 5 last uh, week, a week before last, uh, I'm sorry, not the end of Chapter 5, but the Chapter uh, 6, Verse 10, uh, we saw that we are to not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And look at verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. And so you can see Paul is saying uh, we don't, uh, we're, we're good to the church, especially to the household of faith, but we're good to all people. And I, I've had uh, very uh, well-intentioned Christian men ask me from time to time, are you sure we're supposed to be loving people who are not in the church? Are you sure we're supposed to be uh, spending money and spending our ministry time on people uh, who are poor in the city who don't have anything to do with the church? Uh, and there are a number of verses that we could line up that might make you think the answer to that would be, no, we shouldn't be spending our time there because uh, even the famous verse uh, in Matthew 25 where Jesus says, in as much as you've done this to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me, we see that his point is that we should love the church, the poor in the church. Uh, and there are many other verses. Most of the verses actually in the Bible for caring for the poor have to do with caring for the poor among God's people. Almost all the verses, but not all of them. And verse 10, I think, sort of summarizes the outlook of the Bible on how we care for people who are hurting. You start with the household of faith. Of course, we know from 1 Timothy, you start with your own nuclear family and your extended family. But then you, you care for the household of faith. But notice he says in verse 10, let us be good to all people. And the classic case, of course, and the one that Dr. Martin Luther King uh, preached on regularly was the story of the Good Samaritan. And there you're talking about someone who was not in the household caring for the household. Uh, someone who's in another religion caring for our religion. Uh, and certainly uh, he said go and do likewise. So the Bible does concentrate on being sure that we live as a family. And if you look in Acts 2 and Acts 4, you'll see that from the earliest days of being filled with the Spirit, we sold our possessions and gave to any in the church uh, who had need so that none among us had need. But what you won't find is that we do not care about the poor around us. And certainly in the early centuries of the church, this was our distinguishing mark, that we alone cared for the poor and the dying in the cities in Rome when the plague would hit. Uh, and we were the ones who stayed and cared for the sick. And, and to tell you the truth, that is basically how the church was built. It was evangelized through being the only people who cared for hurting people. And among the Christians, uh, the, those who were ill and even hit with the plague, the survival rates were about three or four times as high among Christians or those who were cared by Christians. Because as you know, life 
often has to do with knowing that you're valued, loved, and cared for. And the Christians did. Others abandoned their families, and they died uh, all over the place. So the Christians were known for this, and it's right here in the text. So I, I didn't want us to, to move on from that verse. We, we got rushed at the end last time without thinking about our strategy for caring for our neighbor. Of course it begins with those who are in the household of faith. If you're in a Sunday school class, you better be sure you're caring for everybody in that Sunday school class. I mean, those people are up close and personal. You've got to take care of those especially. And then everybody in the church and then everybody in the community. As one person said uh, when Jesus was telling the sermon, uh, I mean the parable of the Samaritan, good Samaritan, remember it was an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? It was precisely this question. Who is my neighbor? That is, who am I responsible for? It was a typical Pharisee question. What are the boundaries beyond which I don't have to go to love somebody? Who's my neighbor? And basically what Jesus taught him was your neighbor is the one whose needs you see, whose needs you can meet. The one whose needs you see, whose needs you can meet. And of course, living now in a global community, we have neighbors all over the world, don't we? And uh, so Paul is saying as a result of the gospel, result of Jesus Christ and the whole idea of uh, the imputation of his righteousness to us and our sin to him, and as a result of walking by the Spirit, this is how we live out life. Now, when we come to verse 11, we're coming to the crescendo of this text. But before we do that, uh, let me just speak a moment about where we are. We're, we're finishing Galatians today, but we have two more sessions. They'll be very important sessions. We've got uh, some good uh, guest speakers coming in these next two weeks. I know you'll, you'll enjoy them. Some of you have asked about next year. Let me give you just a little quiz. If you were to think about a book in the Bible where God deeply portrays his own heart, and in portraying his heart, it's a heart of love, especially when we have not been loving toward him. Uh, a book in the Bible that really shows us the covenantal relationship that we have with God that can't be broken. A book that shows us how to be successful in the right sense of that word, to have real life. What would come to mind? Okay. Here's the surprise. Deuteronomy. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> Taylor laughs right in my face. Right in my face. Just a big, bold laugh. What do you mean Deuteronomy? Well, uh, <clears throat> last time you read Deuteronomy, you were hoping you'd get through it quickly and get into to, to Joshua, something you might understand, a little warfare, you know. But Deuteronomy does all those things I was just talking about. And let me tell you something else about Deuteronomy. Two things about it that are important. In order to understand our Bibles, you've got to understand the Old Testament. We've seen this over and over again. You can't understand the new without the old. There are several times here in Galatians where you're just not going to have the context for what Paul's saying if you don't understand his rich Old Testament background in his own mind. You can't understand Jesus unless you understand how he was taught the Old Testament. That was what was in his mind. His references are to the Old Testament. Same with Paul. So the only way you can really understand the New Testament is to have an Old Testament context. Now, if you want to understand the Old Testament, most Old Testament scholars will tell you Deuteronomy is the key. The reason is when you look at Psalms, for example, it's recalling the promises and the warnings in Deuteronomy. 
if you look at the prophets, the prophets are the kind of Bible-thumping fundamentalists of their own day. What are they thumping? Deuteronomy. They're just reminding you of what God said in His covenant. If you look at the Bible theologically, which is a relationship between God redeeming, uh, redeeming a people with whom He has a relationship, what is that relationship? It's covenant. And in Deuteronomy, you'll see the implications of covenant life. So we've put Deuteronomy off for a while because it's not the easiest. But it is at the core of understanding your Old Testament, which is the core of understanding your New Testament. What you'll see in Deuteronomy, everything important that comes up in the gospel of Christ or in the teachings of Paul is emerging right out of Deuteronomy. It's amazing. So that book that seems laughably remote <laughs> to us, it's gonna, you're going to get real close and personal with Deuteronomy <laughs> next year. And, uh, and I'll promise we'll do our best to show us the immediate, practical, everyday relevance of these deep truths that are tucked away in that, that great book, Moses' last book in the Pentateuch. That's the plan. And so uh, we may have only Robert Taylor and two other people in the room next spring, uh, next fall, but uh, uh, do come and bring your friends. I think it'll be important because it shows us how and only how we can have a relationship with God. The other thing I appreciate about Deuteronomy, it really does reveal God for who he is in his love and grace. Believe it or not, it's a gracious book as well as in his holiness and his uniqueness. Uh, which is a message desperately needed for our own day. There you have it, folks. Back to Galatians, verse 11. Let's finish up these last eight verses, and uh, I think we'll see that Paul is really coming to quite a conclusion in these verses. Let's look at it. Verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Do you think he put that amen there because of amen Bible study? I don't know, but it concludes with a big amen. Okay, first thing you notice in verse 11, the gospel is a big deal, gentlemen. A big deal. Why do I say that? Well, Paul says to his amanuensis, his secretary, he says, give me that pen. <laughs> I'm going to write this myself. And he says, see with what large letters I write. I'm going to give you my John Hancock. You know, I'm going to finish this letter myself. You're going to see my crummy handwriting that's about this big. My amanuensis is very, has been printing very carefully across the way so you can see. But now you're going to see my hand at the end. The reason is Paul's been talking passionately about the core of the gospel and about the threats to the gospel, and he just, he, he just kind of loses it. Give me that thing. And uh, he signs off, I think, in a, in a really a flurry of profound passion about the issue he's dealing with. And I put a few references there that will just remind us. For example, if you go back to chapter 1, uh, you'll see in verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the gospel I preached to you. And then he says in verses 8 and 9, that may he who preaches another gospel be condemned. May he go to hell 
uh, he's, he gets really, really strong in ver- chapter 2, uh, verse 11. You'll see, he even opposes an apostle to his face when the apostle Peter was doing something that could threaten the consistency of the gospel. Peter wasn't denying the gospel. Peter wasn't teaching justification by works. He was just misbehaving. He was acting in a way inconsistent with the gospel. And Paul is so concerned about people missing the heart of the gospel that he'll confront an apostle over some inconsistent behavior. And then when you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, You foolish Galatians! I mean, he's, he's really letting them have it. You see the same in verse 3. And then in chapter 4, verse 9, uh, he says, But uh, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? So he's, now he's called them foolish. Now he's called them slaves. Uh, what else can he do? Well, verse 15 and 16, he says, What happened to all your joy? Verse 16, Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? You're treating me, an apostle, like an enemy. Uh, Furthermore, in in chapter 4, you see some more things. Chapter 5, verse 2, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Verses 7, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you? And and so you've been running a race. Your race has been interrupted. And then verse 12, uh, he says, Uh, As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Whoo! He's saying, forget circumcision, castrate them. (laughs) That's how strongly he feels about this. And the reason is, and you pick it up here in verse 11, he is saying, gentlemen, this is vital. This is important. Don't let this get threatened in your life. And there are many things that threaten it. In Paul's case, what was threatening it was the church. What was threatening it was religion. What was threatening it was a misunderstanding of the Bible by people who were very serious religiously. And the people who threaten this more than anybody else are the ones who come on the inside, join the church, and then distort the gospel for themselves, for their families that they're leading, and for everybody else who knows them. And Paul is saying, you guys who are in the church, get a hold of yourself and realize that the gospel of Christ is free. That it is based on something that someone else did for us, not on what we do for ourselves. And we do do things. We must do things. We are called to obedience. And if you're not walking in obedience, at least in repentance, shall we say, then obviously the cross has not yet been applied to you. So the works of outward obedience are necessary as evidences that the cross has been applied to your life and that you've been born again. But for heaven's sakes, realize the ground of our salvation is not on what we've done. The ground upon which our eternal life rests is the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's why Paul's so exercised. This gospel changes people, changes families, changes cities, changes worlds. But if you distort it, it doesn't change anybody. All it can do is take people from one legalistic religion and now put them in a Christian legalistic religion. And that's a lot of what's going on around the world because people have not listened to their apostle. That's what's got him so exercised. And he wouldn't be so... He's not exercised because he's been personally offended. Paul doesn't strike me as an overly needy person. He's, He's exercised because he loves and he's concerned about his hearers. 
and he wants them to know the fullness of the gospel of Christ and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's what it's all about. It's a really big deal. Now, secondly, notice that the nature of the gospel is a big boast. And why do I say that? Well, if you go back even in the Old Testament, once again, here we go again, the, the basis for understanding that the New Testament is the Old, but you'll find often the psalmists are simply boasting in the Lord. For example, David, Psalm 34, he says, my soul, he says, I will extol the Lord all, all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. You see the same thing in Psalm 96. And then, of course, Jeremiah 23, 24. Uh, he says, uh, let not the, the wise man glory or boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man glory or boast in his strength. Uh, he says, let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, righteousness, and justice in all the earth, says the Lord. So don't boast in your wealth, in your wisdom, your strength. Boast in the Lord. And Paul says on many occasions, you know, let no flesh boast in the presence of the Lord. So our boast is in the Lord. But we have a boast. And the gospel is a big boast. The gospel is a big bragging about God. My soul will boast in the Lord. And here's what the Lord has done. He has forgiven sinners fully in Christ. And we have a brag about that. Uh, if you have a trophy wife, <laughs> you brag about her. You take her places. That's the reason you're glad to have her around. Uh, if you have children who have accomplished things, guess what we're going to talk about at lunch? I mean, we're bragging. I mean, I find that as I get older, I just brag more and more about my kids. And pretty soon it'll be my grandchildren. Now, now they're only beautiful and cute. But later on, you're going to find out how brilliant they are uh, because I'll be boasting about them. And I just find as I get older, that's what I boast about, my, my lineage. Look at, the, look at these little Wilsons walking around. Aren't they great? And so we all have a boast. And what Paul is saying, when you come to Christ, your chief boast, in fact, he says, look, man, I boast about nothing except the cross. The cross? A wooden tree on which criminals are hung? Brag about that rather than my grandchildren? Yeah, because of what that cross has accomplished. Now notice, first of all, in verses 12 and 13, that there are false gospels who also elicit a boast, but they elicit boasting in the flesh. False gospels elicit boasting in the flesh. So what happens is when you, we distort the gospel, what it's causing us to do is take our boast away from Uniquely, the cross of Christ and what's been accomplished for us on that cross and the boast becomes, look what I've done. And it happens in Protestant churches, Catholic churches, Orthodox churches, happens in the entire Christian community. We start boasting about how many times I've gone to church. Look at my <laughs> perfect attendance Sunday school. You get those things? I grew up in the Baptist church. So, man, I had, you know, the, you have the main button and then you have one for each year, you know. And you look like a Boy Scout going to church, you know, with all these things. And... I mean, I think that's fine to do that uh, for if, if you do that in your children's program. But it's, there can be a subtle shift. Look at the things I've done in my church. Look at the religious things I've accomplished. Look how I've cleaned up as a person. There's a, there's a shift that can happen, uh, and it's all because of a false gospel. Notice in verse 12, first of all, these false gospels are focused on outward impression. Paul says those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. So why do they want you to move away 
from Christ alone crucified for you as your only righteousness. Why do they want you to move away from that? Because they want you to boast in their flesh and they want to boast in your flesh. Look what I've done. Look at my religious attainments. Look at the kind of person I am. Look what, look what God has done for me in cleaning me up. <laughs> it's boasting on our outward flesh. And that's what circumcision was. Paul is saying, look, he says later on, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. It makes absolutely no difference. So you could be circumcised if you want to. He had Timothy circumcised. And the reason was Timothy was uh, going to be working among the Gentiles and be working in the synagogues, and he didn't want Timothy to be an offense uh, to his Jewish brethren. So for missiological purposes, circumcision, uncircumcision, it's not anything. But with Timothy, he had him circumcised for missiological purposes. But it doesn't mean anything. And yet what happens is we take the things that really don't mean anything and we make that the source of our religion and the label that we carry. And I'm a Christian instead of boasting on the cross. So he's saying it's always focused on outward impression. And you'll find this in Romans chapter 2. You'll find it, for example, with Paul in Philippians chapter 3. And you find there that he, Paul talks about his outward accomplishments. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I belong to the people of Israel. There's his social tag of the tribe of Benjamin. There's his family tag. A Hebrew of Hebrews, there's his religious tag. In regard to the law of Pharisee, there's his moral tag. As for zeal, persecuting the church, there's his missionary tag. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Wow, there are his diplomas on the wall. And Paul goes on to say in Philippians, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So now my profit I see to be only in Christ, his perfect life on my behalf and his death on the cross. Therefore, my outward attainments now mean nothing to me in terms of my eternal salvation. What about your religious attainments? Do you realize how empty they are? And do you realize how tempting it is regularly in your religious life to put those things forward as the essence of your religion? Paul says they're always focused on outward impression. Notice, secondly, there's another motive for this this type of religion, this, this distortion of Christianity that happens in the church. He says they want to avoid persecution. He says in verse 12, the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, he says in chapter 5, verse 11, Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Look at that verse 11, chapter 5. In the case of preaching outward impressive religious attainments, Christ is emptied of his power and the cross loses its offense. Why do people dilute? Why do preachers dilute the centrality of the cross and its sole power to forgive sins? Because it is highly offensive. The cross strips away all of our pretensions to be fairly decent guys. What the cross shows us is the only solution for a life like mine is that the second person of the Trinity must come to earth and take on flesh and die at the hands of wicked men in excruciating death because that's what my little sins, which are actually enormous sins, 
That's what they deserve. And the cross shows me that because the cross is substitutionary. That is, Christ died a substitutionary death. He died a death in my place. He died the death I should have died. You mean my sins were that bad that I should have died like that? Yes. That's the bad news of the gospel. And it's a shame. And it's an offense. As Paul says, it's a scandal to the world and particularly to religious people who have gotten themselves in the frame of thinking that their religious performance is fairly good and God must surely be pleased with that and surely they have some merit with God based on their religious performance. And the cross continually reminds us we have no righteousness, we have no merit before God on our own performance. It's only in the merit of Christ on the cross. That's the reason it's so offensive. And Paul says, look, if I were confusing my message, if you've heard these guys say that they're talking about what I'm talking about, that's baloney. If I were talking like them, why am I getting beat up? I'm talking contrary to the way these these Judaizers are talking. I'm talking about the cross alone. And that you, religious people, are sinners who are deserving of hell. Even after you're converted, you still deserve hell. And the cross keeps reminding us of that. As John Stott says, the cross always cuts us down to our right size. So the cross is an offense, and that's the reason it's offensive. And certainly in our day it's an offense because the cross is exclusive. In other words, you can't, you can't get to the Father except through the Son, and the only way you receive the Son is by receiving His work on the cross. So for those who have not applied the cross to their own hearts, There's no way for a sinner to go into the presence of a holy God. How can someone who's unclean go into the Holy of Holies? We studied Exodus. How would that possibly happen? They'd be fried before they got to the Holy of Holies. The cross applies the blood of the sacrifice to our hearts so that now we, like the high priest once a year, are able to make access into the presence of God. It's only the blood of Christ that does that. Well, without the blood of Christ, there's no way into the presence of a holy God. That's a scandal in our day. That's an offense because it excludes everybody else and it it makes Christianity unique and exclusive and it always has been. But it's for all the world. In that sense, it's inclusive. And that, of course, in Jesus' day was the great offense because the Jews didn't want uh, Jesus preaching to the Gentiles and they certainly didn't want to hear a message that said they were going to be included equally with the Jews. That was an offense. So in Jesus' day, inclusion was offensive. In our day, the exclusion of the cross is offensive. But we avoid persecution, and you'll find that when we distort the message, when your friend or your workmate or your customer or your supplier asks you why you believe in Christianity, and you go off on some discourse about, well, you know, I find it's been pretty good for my family. You know, my kids are learning some morals. My kids like the youth group. My wife goes. We have a great choir. Whenever you, whenever you get off the heart of the message, what you're doing is avoiding persecution. <laughs> well, let's face it. If you say, if, you're, if your client says to you why, why do you, why do you go to church? Why are you a Christian? And you say, well, here's the reason. Because I learned something, some really bad news, that all of us are sinners and deserving of hell. And there's only one way that we can get right with God. And that is by the perfect life of Jesus Christ and the full atoning death on the Calvary's cross, proven by the empty tomb. That's the reason I go to church. Now, there you are. And that, you know, most of the time, the guy will just be looking at you like this. 
But we avoid the centrality of the message. Why? We want to avoid persecution. We want to be nice. We don't want people to, you know, we want people to keep buying from us, you know. Well, the Apostle Paul says, if I were preaching circumcision, I wouldn't have to worry at all about persecution. Everybody likes that. Why? Because everybody wants to keep wearing their fig leaves. They want to keep image managing. If you tell them your religion is kind of like the other ones, come on in and try it. There's really no difference. We try to be good based on the Ten Commandments and, and the Sermon on the Mount. And our Jewish friends just try to be good based on the Ten Commandments. And the, the Muslims just try to be good based on the Quran. Uh, but there's really no difference. Well, there's no offense in that. Don't worry about it. You'll never get persecuted. Your religion is just about the same. has an equal claim to truth and virtue. Uh, and that's what a lot of men do who go to church. And some of it's because they never understood what Paul is trying to teach here. That without the, gospel, without the cross, you don't have a gospel. That's the reason we call it the crucial gospel. The crux of the matter. You know what crux is? It's a cross. It's entered the English language. Because the crux of the problem is the heart of the problem. The reason is the cross, everybody knew, was the heart of the gospel. So if you want to talk about the crux of something, the cross of something, it's the heart of it. And the crucial gospel is a cross-centered gospel. Also notice that those who elicit boasting in the flesh want to boast of their converts. They take great pride in it, you know. Our club has more members than your club. <laughs> Our denomination has more than your denomination. And they take uh, Paul, uh, Jesus says to the Pharisees, these Pharisees, they'll go all, all over the world to make one convert and then make him more of a son of hell than they are. <laughs> That's what he said. And so these people are, are not short on proselytism. Uh, they love their converts. I think you can see this clearly in the Muslim world. They love their converts. They'll kill for it uh, and make people sons of hell uh, more than they are. Um, okay, so in verse 14, notice what the true gospel does. It elicits boasting also. But the true gospel elicits boasting in the cross. Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the crux of the entire matter, gentlemen. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you will see Paul boasting in the cross. And he says in chapter 2, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, he was saying to the Corinthians, here's the crux of the matter. Y'all are sleeping with your stepmother. You're suing each other. You're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. You're teaching in Sunday school that, uh, that uh, the resurrection has already taken place and it's just kind of spiritual. I mean, this was a, this was a truly screwed up church in, in Corinth. It's amazing to me that he calls them brothers. I mean, these people look like they're so far out. It's another religion. But he teaches them, here's, here's the heart of the matter. Here's how you're going to get things right in your theology and your behavior. Get the cross back. If you get the cross back, it's all going to happen just fine. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's ending up Galatians in this grand crescendo. May my boast be never in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, he brags about it. Now, in the Scriptures, you will find, I think we can boil this down to three reasons that we boast in the cross. Let me just give those to you quickly. And these would be the objective accomplishments of the cross. That is what the cross has done for us. Let's look and see what it is. Number one, three R's here that I use. Number one, in the cross, God reveals His character to us. 
I think I've said to you before that you can look through the Bible. It's all about revealing God's character. The Ten Commandments reveal God's character. The most important reason for the Ten Commandments we saw when we studied Exodus was that God reveals His own personal holiness and His own character. Certainly the dividing of the Red Sea, you, you see the character of God in His faithfulness to His covenant with His people. He'll divide the Red Sea and swallow the Egyptians to be faithful to His people, the Israelites. You see all kinds of things in the Bible where God's character is revealed. But nowhere do you see His character revealed more brilliantly than on Calvary's cross because there you see His holiness revealed. You want to know what God thinks about sin? Do you want to know how holy God is? Look what He would do to His own perfect Son in order to qualify His other sons to come into His presence. That's how holy He is. Look at the cross. That's what He thinks about sin. You want to know what God's wrath is like? Look at the cross. You want to know how just He is? Look at the cross. And certainly nowhere else in the Bible will you find the demonstration of His grace anywhere more brilliantly than at the cross. Do you want to know how deep God's love is for sinners? Do you ever wonder about this? Do you want to know, really, could He ever really love you when even though you became a Christian, you still sinned against Him and slandered people and gossiped and committed adultery and even murdered somebody? You want to know if there's any chance for you? Look at the cross. That's the extent to which God will go to rescue His people and He puts all of our sins on Jesus Christ and there it is. That's how much He loves His people. So you can see how the cross reveals these extravagant character traits of God, His holiness, His justice, His faithfulness to His covenant, His love and His grace, His mercy at the cross. So of course we boast in the cross because there God has revealed Himself more than any other act in history. Secondly, it's at the cross where God redeems His people. That's where, you know what redemption is? That's buying something back. You take your S&H green stamps, old guys. Remember, my mama go to the S&H green stamps, turn in her stamps, and where would she turn them in? To get an appliance. At the redemption center. So you're redeeming the appliance by paying the stamps. That's the reason it's called redemption center. So how are we redeemed? We're purchased out from under God's wrath by the gift of His own Son on our behalf. He paid for us. That's the reason that we can be confident that we're saved because He doesn't pay for us and then unpay for us. He bought us. We're His. The payment has been made. So He will surely deliver us out of the fires of His wrath. So redemption has been accomplished for us. Of course we boast on the cross. There, the payment was made at the redemption center. There's where we got bought, even before we were born, before we were conceived, before we were born again, before we ever knew who God was. We got redeemed. We got purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Not by silver and gold, says Peter, but by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Right there at Calvary. Of course we boast in the cross. Thirdly, we see at the cross that God routs His enemies. He puts them up to public spectacle and shame. Look at Colossians 2.15. Paul there says that God put them up to public spectacle, the demons, the, the authorities and the powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross looked like it was the worst defeat in human history, that the only good guy who ever lived is now ignominiously slain by wicked men. And you can hear the devils laughing. 
But very soon after that, you hear the devils shrieking when Christ comes roaring out of the tomb, proving that the cross actually defeated their kingdom. He broke the back of the kingdom of the devil right there on Calvary's tree. So when he died and the earth turned dark, and when he died, you remember that the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom, not as men would tear it bottom to top, but as God would tear it, making access to the Holy of Holies. And God and Christ gave out a roar. It says that he gave out a, a, a groan or a loud shout. That was a shout of victory, I'm quite convinced. It's megalophone. It's, it's like a megaphone. And he shouts out the victory. And then in Matthew's gospel, you see the temple veil is rent. And these crazy things happen. People who were already dead are walking around in Jerusalem. I mean, Christ won a great victory there at Calvary's cross. You can pick this up in C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia. You'll see it there uh, where when the, the lion, when Aslan dies, the table of the law cracks. You remember that in, in, when Aslan died? It's because the great victory was won and the curse of the law was broken and we were set free at Calvary's cross. Of course we boast in the cross. Look at what's done for us by the cross. But now what I want you to notice in this text is that Paul doesn't mention any of those three things. <laughs> he mentions them elsewhere. But here he's on a different focus altogether. The things I just mentioned have to do with the objective accomplishments of the cross. That is, what has the cross done for us? But here Paul is talking about what the cross has done in us. It's accomplished something for us objectively, but it's also accomplished something for us subjectively. The cross actually changes our own nature. The cross transforms my character. Look at this when Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next phrase, Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Notice, first of all, the world has been crucified to me. So the cross has done something in me. It's changed the way I think. It's changed my relationship to the fallen world. It has given me new life right out of the blood of Christ on Calvary's cross. How did that happen? Here's what Paul is saying. He is quite amazed by it. He's saying that as a result of the cross, this world that used to have me by the short hairs, this world that used to have me in its grip, this world that made me want to put up my diplomas on the wall, Pharisee, tribe of Benjamin, university graduate, persecutor of false religions, all these things I want to put up on my wall, I now consider them rubbish, he says. Now I consider them dung. Why? Because the cross has done that for me. The world has become crucified to me. What does he mean by that when he says the world has become crucified to me? John Brown, in his, he's an old Scottish commentator, uh, in his commentary on this text helped me out here a lot when he said, you know, this is what the apostle is saying. He's saying that the world that used to be so alluring to him, so attractive to him, so beguiling to him, now appears to him as a crucified criminal. Just think about it. You're looking at her. She's walking down the beach in a skimpy little bikini. She's gorgeous. She's alluring. She's beguiling. All of a sudden, a shark comes up. Boom! Takes her head off. And all of a sudden, ugh! <laughs> Was that a little bit too graphic? 
Sorry. It's, it's still only 7.15 in the morning. That, but at least you won't have nightmares over it. But that's what the apostle is saying. I was looking at the world. It was so beautiful, so sexy, so alluring, so beguiling. And now I see it for what it is. Dying, putrid, beguiling, only leading me to my tomb. It has the stench of death. You ever smelled death? It has the stench of death to them. And he said, this is amazing. Because by nature, Paul is saying, I know who I am. I'm a diploma guy. I I take great pride by nature in my attainments and my achievements. This is not like me. But I boast in the cross because the cross has brought reality to me that these things are passing away and they don't really mean anything. What means things to me now are the things that are eternal, the things that will endure, the things that are valuable, the things of Christ. And He has broken the bondage between me and the world because I now look to the world and the fetters have come off. The bondage is broken. Gentlemen, has this happened to you? Do you, do you? Have you tasted anything of what the apostle is talking about? This is what it means to receive the work of the cross. And we boast in the cross not only because of what it's done for us, but because of what it's done in us. Well, in case you, you thought we'd come to the end of the, the line here, Paul says there's more. It's not just the way that I look at the world now, which is a miracle to me and amazes me, but it's now the way the world looks to me. Look what else he says. He says, not only that the world has been crucified to me, but I to the world. He's saying, he's saying that I have been crucified to the world. What's he saying? Take the same analogy. The world looked like a crucified criminal to him, and he's now delighting himself in the fact that in the eyes of the world, he appears to be a crucified criminal. Now, gentlemen, I don't know about you. Some of you could maybe raise a question here, but most of the time, before we go to a public place, we look in the mirror. I do wonder about a few of you here this morning. But <laughs> maybe you didn't take it. Maybe it was a little groggy this morning you looked in the mirror. But you generally, you're looking pretty good this morning. And that's because you looked in the mirror and you parted your hair and you, you know, did some other things, shaved your face. Uh, and you look to see if everything was all right. Why? Because <laughs> you don't want to go out looking like a slob. And that's the natural condition of us to want to manage our image, our physical image, in front of other people and look right, get the tie straight, don't get it crooked. And there's a reason for that. I don't want to look like a slob. And I certainly don't want to look like Jesus did on the cross. That's pretty bad. Mostly naked with nails hanging out my arms and my legs and groaning in agony. This is an amazing statement. Paul didn't want to look like that either. He always wanted to be on top. He wanted to persecute people who were belong to the other club, the other religion. That was his technique. I'm on the top. I persecute those over whom I have power to persecute. And now he's amazed at what the cross has done for him. It has given him delight in the eyes of this putrid, sinful, and adulterous generation. He's taking delight in being in their eyes the same as a crucified criminal. In other words, he is completely identifying with Jesus Christ. So he identifies with him in his resurrection, to be sure. Paul knows resurrection power. And he says that we walk by the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. 
So we have the power of the resurrection. We identify with the resurrected Jesus Christ and we glory in that. But Paul is also saying that while I live in this world, this world crucifies people like the one I love and let them crucify me. In the eyes of this broken world who are distorted, dysfunctional, and uh, unreal in the ultimate sense, let me be the same as Jesus was to them. Because to them, the only appropriate place for Jesus to end up was on a cross. Let the world look at me at the same way because I completely identify with them. And Paul was amazed at this. You know why he was amazed. He was the one putting people on crosses. He was the one holding the cloaks of uh, the people who stoned Stephen to death. That was Saul who was holding their cloaks and encouraging them on as a young man. And he's amazed now that he's taking the place of Stephen instead of the place of stoning Stephen. And it's all because of the cross. He's amazed by this. And he says, look, look, folks, I'm not boasting about any external attainments, including baptism, circumcision, whatever you want to call it. I'm not boasting in any of that. I'm boasting in one thing, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For all the objective reasons, but here particularly the subjective reasons, it's changed my entire outlook and my whole life. And it's brought me joy. So you see the Apostle Paul completely humbled. And this is the reason that when you get to a, a text like 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul decisively takes on the whole health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. These people who thought they, they'd have everything. You get Jesus and eternal life plus, you get success. You get happiness in this life and everything will go for you. And Paul says, I just got one question for you. If this is the way it works, why is it that I, who am the apostle, am at the end of the parade like a criminal captured and Treated like the refuse and dung of the parade. Why is that? I'm the apostle. He says, how much I wish that I were a king like you are. I wish I, wish I, I, wish I had what you have. Wouldn't that be wonderful? He was speaking ironically, of course, to say to them, you don't have what you need to have. Because when you have it, there will be times when you're at the end of the parade, like the captured prisoners from a foreign land, and you're the refuse of the world in their eyes. And Paul says we take delight in it. Not because we're failures, but because we're in Christ. That's where the delight comes from. It's the greatest irony of anything in the world you'll ever know. That the most joyful men are the men who also take delight in being crucified criminals before the world. That's the power of the cross. And when you just walk into our sanctuary here, you'll look up uh, along the, the, right at the, tops of where the, the old columns used to be. And they're around the, the ceiling now. You'll see what are known as the shields of the apostles. All the apostles have, it's kind of like a coat of arms. Every one of the apostles has a, has a traditional shield. And you'll see on there, on every one of them almost, weapons of execution. Paul's, his, his shield is a, an open Bible with a battle axe on it because it, it was, we were taught that he was uh, beheaded because he preached Christ crucified. Peter's, of course, has the cross upside down because tradition, reliable tradition tells us he was executed on a cross, but he did not want to be executed the same way that his Savior was because he was unworthy. So he was crucified upside down. Uh, uh, Andrew has a diagonal cross because 
uh, tradition teaches us that he was crucified also on a diagonal cross for preaching Christ crucified. Philip, you'll find on Philip's shield also a very slender cross because tradition teaches us that he was crucified on a very slender cross. Thomas, of course, has three stones on it because uh, he uh, was stoned to death in India for preaching Christ crucified. Uh, on and on it goes. John is the only one who died what we would call a natural death. He was exiled on the Isle of Patmos and died of old age. Every one of the other apostles, gentlemen, were put to death. They were tortured because they believed in Christ crucified and they refused to avoid persecution and distort the message. They stuck with the message because it had changed their very lives. And they wanted to proclaim a message that would bring joy and eternal life to others who would hear the message no matter what the cost was to them. And they delighted in walking even to their deaths. That is the majority story of the history of the church. We happen to live in a time, in a little window of space and time, when we're not physically persecuted for our faith. And somehow I think we've gotten the idea that Christians are people who are successful and never face persecution. We've been led badly astray. This is the minority report. When we all get together for the great general assembly in heaven and we all talk about our experience, we'll be the few who didn't know anything really about persecution. And we can thank our fathers and mothers and those who have built a society that was largely based upon principles from the gospel to bring issues of justice and so forth to society. But generally speaking, that is not the case. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who are being persecuted this year for their faith. The majority report is that when you come to Christ, you lay down your life. That's the reason that Jesus said, take up your cross. If you're going to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And you remember that he told the disciples on several occasions, don't tell anybody about who I am. And we wonder, why did he say that to them? Here, I think, is one reason. Because when Jesus said uh, he was going to die on a cross, Peter said to him, no, Lord, never, Lord, not you. Peter thought he had the gospel because he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he didn't really have the gospel because he didn't realize that Christ, the Son of the living God, was to lay down his life on a cross and Peter was to take up his cross and follow the exact same path, the Via Dolorosa, that Jesus Christ had followed. And Jesus did not want them going out and preaching a gospel without a cross because the gospel is a crucial gospel. It's a cross-centered gospel. And it should not be preached unless the cross is in it. And most churches, most churches in this country are preaching a gospel without a substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners in their message. It's a distortion. It's a let's get along with our neighbor message. It's not a let's get our neighbor to heaven message. And it doesn't pay a price. And the Apostle Paul knew that that was what was going on in Galatia. That these people were taking their religious traditions and distorting what actually happened on the cross of Calvary and its meaning theologically and spiritually for all of us. And Paul laid down his life for that gospel. He was ready to leave right now, leave this, this planet, rather than to participate in a distortion of the only message that changes people's lives. And that's the reason he goes on to say, that the gospel is a big blessing. And here's, here's the reason that Paul fought so hard. It's not, I mean, of course he loved Jesus and he wanted the real meaning of Jesus' life and death to be known by others. But Paul also knew there were some certain blessings that come to us only through this message. And the first one is the gospel alone brings God's peace. 
How can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? Only if everything has already been accomplished for me. If, it's, if anything's left up to me in terms of my righteousness, my ticket into heaven, then it's, I'm a goner. I got a ticket right here. Go get, go, go get my shoes in just a minute. And I guess without that ticket, I won't get my shoes. Somebody else will get them. I could probably talk them into it. But let me tell you, when you get to heaven, you can't talk anybody into anything. You're either righteous or you're not. And peace with God comes from knowing that He loves you and the price has been paid and you're on your way to heaven. And the only way that's going to happen is if you receive the work for you on the cross. So the blessings are profound, but they only come through the cross. Secondly, the gospel alone distinguishes God's people. Paul says, now Paul, of course, was circumcised. So that that was not a debate. Paul wasn't jealous because they were preaching circumcision and he wasn't circumcised. Paul was circumcised. But he was... He was outraged at the idea that we had to add anything to the work of Christ. Because if you add something, now you're not sure you're going to heaven. As soon as you add something, you're not sure. Because if you have to do this, how long will it take you to violate whatever that was you had to do? About 10 seconds. You're gone. You're cooked. You're toast. You're out of here. Paul says peace comes this way and we're marked this way. How are we marked? By our persecutions. And we're marked out this way. We're willing to pay the price. That's how people know the gospel is real because we've been sold out on it. We love Jesus Christ and what He's done for us on the cross. Paul says, I don't need circumcision. I already bear the marks of Jesus. It's the, the word for marks is the word stigmata. You may have heard of this. There are traditions uh, in the medieval church about people contemplating until they got the stigmata, the mark on their hands and their feet, actually marks. And they would contemplate sort of a deep spiritual thing until the stigmata appeared on them. And people would wonder, what are the stigmata? And they'd get into all the superstitions of the stigmata. That's not what Paul's talking about. What are the marks he's talking about? The whip marks on his back from, from being a believer. The, you know, George Whitfield, when he would preach, the great evangelist, he used to take his wig off and show the big scar right down his bald head from a, a brick that hit him. And somebody was angry at the gospel of Christ and the cross. George Whitfield had the marks. You have them too. It was uh, Amy uh, Carmichael, the great missionary to India, who says, can he have followed far who knows no wound nor scar? Impossible. So we have the scars. Paul says, forget circumcision as marking us out. I'm already marked. I'm his. I paid the price, and we all will. Thirdly, the gospel alone communicates God's grace. It's not grace if it's conditional. Listen to me. It's not grace if it's conditional. Now, it's true. You must believe. You must repent. You will not go to heaven if you do not believe and do not repent. But listen to this. The Bible teaches us that your belief and your repentance are given to you as gifts. The very thing that's commanded of you, God gives to you. That's called grace. It's all of grace. Yes, of course. We're responding. Yes, of course, we must respond. But it's all what he gives us to respond with. It's kind of like I say to my son, son, I'd like for you to pay tuition all by yourself. I want you to take the tuition today and pay for your school bill. How am I going to do that, Dad? Well, here, I'm going to write you a check. <laughs> you go in and pay your tuition with my check. So he paid the tuition. 
Do you think he paid the tuition out of his bank account? No, he paid the tuition out of my bank account. And so when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm paying out of his bank account. He gave me the faith in the first place. That's grace. And it's unconditional. And it's only possible by the cross of Jesus Christ properly understood. That's really the message of Galatians. Paul gets exercised about it. You know what I think? I think more men in our day need to get really exercised about it in their worship, focusing their worship on a God who loves them so much that He sent His Son to die on a cross. They need to get exercised about it in their meditations as they organize their lives and the priorities in their lives, being really passionate. How can I respond to someone who loved me like that? They need to be really passionate about the cross in the way they explain it to other people, beginning with their own families. Honey, do you understand what Jesus has done for us? Are you sure that you've received this in your life? And do you know it's happening to you, that your whole life is being changed by the cross? This needs to happen more than anything else I know of among men here and around the world. Glory be to God for the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the peace and for the grace that has come to us by virtue of the cross of Calvary. Lord Jesus Christ, we lift Your name up. We lift You up. We lift up Your great work on Calvary's cross. And we pray that we may continue to experience the joy of having the world crucified to us and us to the world. And may there come nothing in our lives, in our minds, that would ever distort or avoid or evade the heart the crux of this precious gospel. May we be men of the free gospel of Jesus Christ. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.